You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. Janet up. She just wants to say thank you. Come on up, hun. This is the first time we've been up here in front of you since November. So, yeah. Hey, look, I just want to say thank you so much for everything. Um, you know, the fact is, is there is definitely no place like home, and Australia's home. And um, I want to thank you for your continued prayer and support. Um, I met, was over there for like just over three, three months. And in t- at times, it was the longest three months I've ever had. And I just want to thank you for upholding me and Keith and our family because yeah. um, it was really tough at times. The interesting thing was um, I got the privilege of, of uh, caring for my mom 24-7 for the, the last three weeks and a bit of, of her life. And I know that there were times when being lonely and isolated and everything, that I could feel people's praying. Right. And I was told that every week, the, the, one of the staff would get up and share what was happening, and you would pray. The power of prayer is just unbelievable. Yeah. And I don't want you to ever to think that your prayers aren't important, because they are. Right. But the other thing is, um, it allowed me to reconnect with my brother and his family, it allowed my brother, my sister, and I to laugh, to talk about our past, to, to have wonderful stories. Keith and I were asked to do the um, eulogy and the funeral, and it was, again, people praying for us, and we were able to do that. And um, just really quickly is the flowers. You sent flowers. Yeah. You might not have known this. But you sent flowers. I want you to know those flowers. We have a picture of it, but no, not we up here. Up. No, we didn't. But they lasted almost the whole time. From the time mom passed, the flowers were sent. They lived all the way through to almost like right before I left with Keith. That that in itself was a miracle. And it wasn't it didn't have those special little Little things, the fertilizer that keeps everything alive. Spoke a lot to the family, too. Pardon? Spoke a lot to the family that you would do that from here. Our family was just blown away by your your incredible kindness. And and I thank our staff. They were just amazing. I mean, my goodness, they kept everything going. They deserve. And our, our board... You know, they just kept things ticking along, right. and they didn't. It wasn't waiting or sitting or going backwards. It was actually going forward, and that's when you know you've done your, mm-hmm. you've done things right. And I also want to thank to everybody. I thank my husband who came, and you know what? He, when we wanted to just fall because we had to clean a house of, we found stuff eighteen in the eighteen seventies. We found stuff, yeah, yeah, in a corset box. And we were about ready to it throw it out. It wasn't a corset from no, the 1870s. But we're all like kind of going, really, do you want to open that? No, not really, do you? Anyway, we did, and we found like birth certificates, wedding announce- wedding license. Your great-grandparents' wedding certificate from the yeah. 1870s. I mean, who does that? But he, it, it got overwhelming at times because we went through a lot of stuff. 
but he was there to just help. When we all wanted to give up, he kept urging us on, and he worked day and night. And I am so thankful for this man that he came and that you released him and that we could all be now back together. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome. Thank you. Good. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I... I uh... I want to say thank you, but I want you to stay standing for a second because I want to give a shout out to Pastors Knight and Reich and the team who did a stellar job. Come on, give them a hand. They did excel. Thank you, guys, and the team. Uh, And Janet and I knew you were in great hands. Didn't worry a bit, except for when all of a sudden, when I took Janet for a small break to the Amish country, they thought that we had gone out off the living grid. So you realize they live out in the countryside. We're in a town. You see them everywhere, but yeah. Okay, so this is my first preach here since November last year. I know. Seems like forever, doesn't it? And I promise not to go as long as Northwest that I did a few weeks ago. I'm going to set this thing. There we go. That didn't work. Hang on. No, I didn't. That's working now. Oh, it's true. It's like the little kid uh, kept inviting his Catholic friend to come to church with him. And Catholic kid said, no, you come with me first. So the little kid goes to church or to mass with his Catholic friend. And you know how it is there. Everything is ordered and it's kind of everything happens you don't know about. There's all the, the incense and the water and the prayers and the up and the down. And every time something would happen, the little Pentecostal kid would lean over to the Catholic kid and say, what does that mean? And he'd explain it. So the next week, the little Catholic kid came to the Pentecostal church. And every time people would wave their hands, the Catholic kid would say, what's that about? And the Pentecostal kid would explain it. So when the guy got up to preach, he said his timer on. And the Catholic kid said, what does that mean? The Pentecostal kid said, absolutely nothing. (laughs) So even though it's going to go off, you were right. It doesn't matter. That means nothing, doesn't it? So... But it really is hard to keep it short. It really is. How can you effectively dig the stuff out of there in 30 minutes? Really, how can you do that? Uh, It's tough. So here we are again with Drill Sergeant James, as Pastor Simeon called him last week. Didn't he do a great job preaching last week? Awesome. He said, I was here this morning to correct all of his theology, and I just said, what theology? It's just, you know, that was just life. That wasn't about theology. That was just great stuff, man. That was awesome. So, and I can't speak for you, but I know that there are times in my life when I need the strength and the discipline of a drill sergeant. Mm -hmm. I need to occasionally go back and visit the Christian boot camp to get my disciplines in order. When I was in the States, I I told this story. I don't have time, run out of time. My nephew got miraculously saved. I mean, he had an encounter where God saved his life. And he had fallen into drugs, he had fallen into all kind of stuff. A young lady had gotten killed on one of his adventures and he thought he was going to die and he said to God right before that, well, I guess this is it. This is you killing, punishing me for killing the young lady. Instead, God saved him. You, you can listen to the story because it's quite miraculous. I don't have time. But the amazing thing was he, he got connected to Church of the Highlands, Pastor Chris Hodges' church, the one who spoke at Presence last year. And he got baptized, and he sent me pictures of his baptism. I was talking to my brother, his father, 
And my brother's going, yeah, I'm so proud of him, but I'm a little bit worried. And I said, what are you worried about? He said, church seems a little bit cultish. I said, yeah, I can understand you thinking that. He said, yeah, he's there like four or five nights a week. He's at the church. And he's all, he's all caught up in this stuff. And I said, hey, listen, Mark. Here's the deal. It's like he's in boot camp. I said, look what he's coming out of. When you become a soldier and you go into boot camp, one of the first things they do is they strip away everything about you and they break your will so they can remake you. And I said, he, 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 he's in this boot camp setting to just strip away all that old stuff so that he comes out new. I said, he'll be all right. I said, I was like that when I first became a Christian. I needed that boot camp. And I said, he won't stay like that long. I said, he'll stay passionate, but he won't stay like that long. But, but I need to tell you, you know, I, I need to go back to the boot camp occasionally. I, I need to make sure the disciplines are strong. And the text that we're going to look at this morning certainly feels like we are at boot camp and we are being spoken to by the drill sergeant. But before we dig into that, let me give you a few comments. Number one, you can read the book of James and beat yourself up. Or you can read the book of James and thank God that he loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. Second, right at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verse 27, James is committed to showing us what true, genuine religion is. Period. And you know that he's writing to a very religious mindset, a very religious culture. These people were hyper-monotheistic. They had one God and that was it and they were very zealous about him. But their religion overtook the reality of faith. And so James, and it creeps into the church, and James, he's letting them know that genuine religion is not just about what you believe, but also about how you live. Keep that in mind. Third, James throughout this book, includes himself in the struggle to be genuine in his faith walk. It's true. Now, now, you know who he is. He's the brother of Jesus. I don't know if he's second in line or third in line, but he could have berated them, constantly berated them, promoted himself above them. I, I hate it when commentators on television and people go, oh, they're just preaching at us. And you probably think at times we're preaching at you. But the reality is we're journeying with you. And that's the way James is writing here. You know, he, he could have promoted himself. For heaven's sakes, he's the brother of the Messiah. He could have promoted himself. But instead, he includes himself in this struggle of what genuine faith is all about. And he recognizes it's a battle. Right? You don't find it a battle? All right. Because he's not speaking from theory or principles, he's speaking from his experience. Hey, I grew up with this guy. I lived in the shadow of the perfect kid. Claimed to be the Messiah. And he said, I know what it's like. I'm not perfect. And so he's speaking from his experience here. So if you're ready, we're going to jump in. Here we are at boot camp, chapter 4, verse 1. And he says... What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You know what James is saying? There's a battle. There's a war within us. 
And that war is because of desires, motives, and pleasures that are not right. The New Living says it this way, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desire at war within you? And James makes it clear from the outset that there are conflicts that take place within us, and that's what causes the conflicts out there around us. They come from within. This is what's taking place. There's a battle that goes on in each one of us, and I know that's my experience. I'll be honest with you. There's a battle. And I will be even more honest with you. It doesn't get easier as you get older. If you stay with the faith. Here's where Paul and James agree. Paul in Romans 7, 23 says this. There's another power within me that's at war with my mind, my soul. I'm at war inside, man. Whoever said being a Christian is easy? These people that say, oh, you just... You just want to escape from reality. Christian lives are better roses. You guys just think everything goes your way. Who told us there'd never be any problems? No suffering, no sin, no conflicts. Whoever said that? God didn't say that. God said, get ready for war. And one of the biggest wars you're going to face is right in here. It's not out there. Because we still live in a world that's fallen and it bombards us with temptation. But alongside of that, we've still... Tempted by our own desires and our motives and things are inside us that's going on. I, I wish it all just went away when I got born again. But if it's all gone, wake up, you're in heaven. And when these things take place, it puts us at odds with people around us. He said, you covet, you steal, you murder. I hadn't killed anybody. No, but I kind of wish they weren't around so I could have what they've got. See, being a child of God doesn't give us an escape clause from the world. It doesn't take us out of the world. But being a Christian gives us the power to make it through it all. That's the deal. And James tells us that a bit later in the text. But for now, you know what he says? Even when you ask, you don't get it. Because you ask in a wrong way. You ask selfishly with the wrong motives. People go, oh, I never pray like that. Really? Really? I remember years ago when we used to pray for somebody to get healed. We always had to pray with a proviso. Oh, God, heal Pete if it be thy will. There was a proviso, if it be thy will. And we always had that caveat on everything. If it be thy will, oh, God. If it be. And you know what it was? It was really a cop-out to say, I don't think I got faith for that healing. That's what it was. It really was. Sometimes it wasn't, though. Sometimes it was genuinely saying... The will of God is bigger than my desire. And I think somewhere along the line of moving to faith, we've lost the sovereignty of God. It's not us pushing Him in prayer. It's us partnering with Him for His will. Right? Got it? And so the deal is this. You know, whatever we pray, whether we... You use that phrase, if it be thy will. That doesn't mean you've got a lack of faith. But what it should mean in all times, and whatever should be true, is that when we ask, we should want what God wants. And we should pray what He wants. I like what uh, McKnight says in his book, The Letter of James. He said this, Wise church leaders know the fine line between wanting what God wants and wanting what they want. Now, understand this. James is in a setting. He's with a community of people, very highly religious 
and the teachers of that community had erased the line. There was no line. God's going to do what I say, what I want. I will move him to do my will because my will is sovereign. And there were those in James's communities writing to, the, the, especially the teachers and the leaders that forgot what God wanted. So they prayed their own selfish stuff. Now I can't speak for you, but I can tell you that in my prayer life there are times when the line between my will and his will gets blurred. I'm just being honest with you. I still battle with wrong desires and motives and I still battle with the self that lives in me my biggest enemy Satan's not my enemy he doesn't even know I exist I'm not a big enough fish for him to fry there's only one of him there's a lot of us and he's not omnipresent by the way he's not omniscient he doesn't know everything he's not omnipotent he is not all-powerful and he is not omnipresent he's not reading your thoughts right now he's probably not even around here he's going "Eh, there's bigger fish I'm frying like right now like whole governments that control nations The biggest enemy I've got lives right in here. That old self that just tries to crawl up out of the grave and take hold of me. But I want to tell you, I thank God there's a way to live above this. There is. But hang on, it gets even more sporty in the next few verses before we get there. Verse 4. Hallelujah. He starts the next line with you adulterous people. Now I'll tell you, if I got up and preached today and the first thing I said wasn't good morning church we love you it was you adulterous people I mean that's a way to build your church isn't it I mean that's not the kind of language you use if you want to win friends and influence people you adulterous people that's the drill sergeant he goes on says don't you know you should know this that friendship with the world is hatred toward God anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God Wow, I am in boot camp. I remember in wrestling, um, I was on the state championship team. Coach said to us right at the beginning, no girlfriends, no alcohol, no Coca-Cola, no chocolate. And if you smoke or I catch you doing any drugs, you're gone. That's why we're the championship team. True. I mean, even no chocolate, no girl, no girlfriends. Oh, God, I'm going to die. You know, it's like... Girlfriends, I'm in high school. I'm a hormone in sneakers. Now, James isn't saying here, you've got to isolate yourself from the world, you've got to like nothing about it, and you've got to stay away from the people because they're polluted. That is not what he is saying. Do you know what he's saying? You cannot flirt with the world and its system and live for the kingdom of God at the same time. That's what he's saying. This world system is baptizing something that is actually at enmity with God. And you need to see that. You're supposed to be ruling over it, not immersed in it. See, the use of the word friend in the New Testament and throughout the New Testament isn't about this casual acquaintance. Oh, they befriended me on Facebook. Oh, hallelujah. I've never met them, but they're my friend. That's not what he's saying. It's not a casual acquaintance that we get through social media. Oh, I got a thousand friends. Really? Well, you're awesome. Look here. He contrasts friendship with enemy. That's how strong this is. One of these, a friend is somebody who loves you, lives for you, believes the best in you, and will die for you. Closer than a brother. 
But an enemy is somebody that wants to destroy you. They hate you. And everything they do is to bring you out and down. Now, they are at polar opposites. You can't say, oh, I, I love this world so much. And I love God so much. He said, can't do that. Can't do that. This, this is rough. This is raw. This is real. Listen, you can't dance with the devil and take God to the prom as your date. It doesn't work. God says, I'm not going to have it that way. He's very clear. You can't have two loves at the same time. Now, here's a, he uses such strong language. Adultery. Now you, you, can, you can soft soap it all you want to. You can call it a fair. You can call it fling. You can call it play in the field. But God calls it betrayal. God calls it breaking trust. God calls it no loyalty. Is it any different to what Jesus said? Oh, I know. You're quiet. I'm telling you. We're at boot camp. You don't talk back to the sergeant. The only thing you say to the sergeant is, yes, sir. What did Jesus say in Luke 16? No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one, love the other. You'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You go back and look at that context. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the religious people. Who hated that saying? The religious leaders. Why? Because they had two loves. And they knew. I love this, but I say I love God. And Jesus said, no, you don't. You can't. Not possible. It's not real. And they got upset. That's one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. He's challenging their dual love system. It's not possible to give your whole heart to God and to someone or something else. The reality is that that equals to what's called, what I call a misplaced love. It's not real love. It's misplaced love. Saying you've got two loves at once. James calls it unfaithful. You're not loyal. You don't really love each other. And the sad thing is, for the Jews, that was their history. And he knows that. What do you think the book of Hosea is all about? The book of Hosea is about a nation committing adultery. You have another love, and it's not God. And James just brings that right into their present and goes, Here it is, guys. You've got two loves. Now, before we get too tough on them, what about us? What about you? What about me? Does our heart stray from loving God totally? Oh, we don't say so, especially when we sing songs. I like what uh, Francis Frangipane said years ago. No, no, it was A.W. Tozer who originally said it in the book. Francis just claimed it. Okay. Um, he said, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. What about you? What about me? Do we fall in love with someone else? Something else? Does our reputation matter more than our faith? Does my status in society mean more to me? What about my home, my possessions? Do they get more of my commitment and affection than God does? Oh, I know this is tough, but we're at boot camp. You don't make it here, you're not going to make it in the war. Come on. Paul talks about being a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then James goes to what, what some will say is probably the most difficult verse in the New Testament to interpret. Verse 5. Or do you think the scriptures, the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Man, that's a tough verse. How in the world do I understand that? It's so difficult. It's got a range of meanings it could possibly be. Well, I believe the best way to look at it is to look at another translation. Let me just put that up and unpack it a little bit for you. It says this, Do you think the Scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the Spirit He placed within us should be faithful to Him. 
Now, we know from the Old Testament, God says, hey, I'm jealous. I'm a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. He said, I'm jealous about this. I created you for me and to be with me. And you shall have no other gods before you. But here's the deal. God who caused us to be a living soul wants our love and affection. He didn't create us as toys. He created us as his children. And he'll not vie for our attention or barter for our faithfulness. He'll not share us with another. But there's a problem. Our soul, and this is what he's trying to say here. Our soul, that living being that he put within us, gravitates towards envy. Hey, I want what you've got. I want what I want. And we gravitate towards wrong motives. Oh, God, I'm praying, and I'm not praying anything about your will. It just says you'll give this good gift to me. I didn't bother asking him if he wanted to. I just want this thing. And then it's outworked in treating others wrongly. Because our soul is taught. I mean, one of the first words you learn as a child is that infamous word, mine, mine, mine. Just watch two toddlers over the same toy. Mine, mine. And one of them will end up hitting the other one over the head with it if they get half a chance, right? Because I want what I want. And I want what you've got. Our soul is so bent on serving self that it seems like the kind of life that God wants us to live is impossible. And this is what James is saying. It is impossible. It is absolutely impossible. I know I lived with him. Try living in the shadow of the perfect. Try living in the home of God. It is impossible. But thank God that there's a solution. Thank God there's a solution. It all begins with that little three-letter word at the start of verse 6, but. You got envy, you got wrong motives, you don't even get your prayers answered, and you kill each other, and you covet, and you got the wrong desires, and you spend on your own pleasure, but. But. Come on, everybody say that word, but. Now let's say it together, ready? But. Right. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. You know what, you know what he's saying there? More grace doesn't mean you need to top up. You know what more grace means? It means that grace is far more than the stuff that's trying to take you down. That's what it means. It says that's why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's that word but again. And here's the deal. My pride would say, I'll do it my way. I'll make it happen. There are even times where in ministry, I didn't even think about God. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? I didn't ask him what he wanted. I just had this thought go through my head was, well, I'll just make it happen. I'll use my abilities because I've done it before and I'll just make it happen. I don't know if you've ever been stiff-armed by God, but it's not fun. Where God goes, oh yeah? Really? Really? My pride says, my religious effort will build the church. My pride says, my talents and gifting will build the church. My pride says, I'll advance this for your kingdom. My pride says, and God says, well, I just opposed you. I just stood opposite you and said, nah. 
No, thank you. You ever want to get God to turn in the other direction? Just do it your way. Instead, you ought to say, God, I need more grace. I need more grace. But he gives grace to those who will say, God, I can't do this. There's no way I can keep my motives under check without the power of your spirit. No way. Here's James writing about grace. Who said that James is only a works man? Who said that James doesn't know anything about grace? James knows that works only work when they're energized by grace. Right? I was reading through this yesterday. As happens, an uh, old song came up in the memory. The song's based on um, James 4, 6. It started out as a poem written by Annie Flint back about 1913. Somebody later put it into music and then later Don Moen, the guy who founded Hosanna Integrity, put it into music. Now I know it's old language, but for some of you who think old is always not good, camp on the words for a minute. I didn't do that. I love these words. And these, these are the words that start going through my head. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he added, addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. This was written by a lady who was crippled and bound into a wheelchair. She lost her parents, um, not simultaneously. She lost one shortly after lost the other, got sent to adopted parents, and then lost them. And yet she wrote this poem, He Giveth More Grace. She couldn't even hardly write. Her hands were so bent and twisted with arthritis. And yet she said, For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And I can only say this more, and the longer I'm a child of God, the more I realize I need his grace. Because grace is not just a theological truth that affects me when I'm born again. Grace is an everyday reality. I cry out for grace every day now as if I never had it. I know it sounds horrible, doesn't it? I forget who was it said, I believe like a Calvinist, like I'll never lose my salvation, but I live like a Methodist, like I've lost it every day. I cry out for grace, more grace. Because as George Eldon Ladd said, grace is God's empowering presence. It's not just a theological concept. I need the power of His grace more today than ever before. But you know what? Grace doesn't absolve me from being active in my faith. I think that's the, that's the, the pendulum that swung too far with generations today. It's like grace absolves me from confessing my sin. Grace absolves me from repenting. Grace absolves me from living right. Grace and righteousness are not in conflict. They are the two sides of the same coin. 
And grace doesn't absolve me. The, the whole letter of James is about, hey, it's about how you live, guys. And that's why he has at least one imperative for every second verse in this book. In other words, there's 108 verses in James. There's 54 imperatives or commands, if you like, higher than anywhere else in the New Testament. And in the last section, oh, we don't have time to go into it, but this last section has 11 imperatives in it. That's pretty high. 11 times he says, you must do this. See, people think, I, I had a guy in South Australia tell me, Keith, you can never say must when you preach. I went, oh, really? Can I cut then out of my Bible where Jesus said you must be born again? Because he thought if you said must, it takes away grace. Well, I'm telling you, he doesn't understand the Bible because the Bible is full of imperatives that say, you got to do this. Nobody's going to do it for you. God's not even going to do it for you. you got to do this. This is about an action that commands us to, hey, you, things have got to change. This is a tough section. Submit yourselves then to God. This is a constant inward and outward thing. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. So the first one is submit. The second one's resist. The third one is come near. The fourth one is wash your hands. The fifth one is purify your hearts. The sixth one is grieve. Seven, mourn. Eight, wail. Nine, stop laughing. Ten, stop being joyful. Eleven, get humble. You go, golly, what a dark set of verses. Perhaps, perhaps he's using language that overstates to shock them into repentance. So many altar calls are given today for people to become Christian and repentance is never mentioned. Yet it says in Acts 2.38, repent and you'll be born again. What's repentance? Change of mind, change of heart. You take God's side against you. You don't try to justify anything. You come broken. This is what this is talking about. Until we come before God broken, totally broken, we can never be put together rightly. See, that's what they do at boot camp. I, I wasn't in the military, but most of my family have been. I got spared. I got born again. No, serious. I was going to join the military. And they'll tell you one by one at boot camp, their goal is to totally break you down to where you're nothing. And from that point, they rebuild you to be a war machine. James in this boot camp letter is breaking us down, showing you got pride. You don't submit yourself. Your hands are dirty. Your heart's got wrong motives. And until you submit, until you resist, until you wash, until you change your heart, until you even get to the stage where you are so sorry before God that you are broken and you grieve and you mourn and you can't even laugh anymore, you're at a place where God's about to lift you up. And by His grace, He's going to take you to a place that you will never get to until this takes place. And James wants us to get there because the only way for you and I to get there is more grace. More grace. More grace. Can we stand to our feet for a minute? I know, look, I, I feel like I've just been kind of worked over by the drill sergeant and like I said I can walk away and beat myself up and say guilty or I can go too hard not going to try or I can surrender to the drill sergeant say oh God forgive me for even trying 
to do it my way. It's amazing how many people even try to come to faith through their own way. It doesn't work. I, I think it's an amazing thing. I, you know, people are all worried about, oh, what happens if we can't meet anymore? And what happens if we can't do this? God's in the middle of this, people. You know, in China, you probably saw the movie Chariots of Fire, Eric Lytle, the great runner, went back to China as a missionary after he ran in the Olympics. The bamboo curtain closed. He stayed. He died in a concentration camp. Gave his life for the gospel. People said, that's it for China. Um, because missionaries have been flooding in there from the West for decades and then all of a sudden closed. They started killing them. They started shutting churches, doing all kinds of things. And the West was saying, that'll be the end of Christianity in China. When the bamboo curtain came down and the West was allowed to go back in, particularly Christians, you know what they found? The church was bigger and stronger than ever before. The church did not cease. It just went to ground and all of a sudden hundreds of thousands of, of house churches were born and they say that upwards of 15,000 Chinese a day were being swept into the kingdom a day we don't know what God's got in this but I'll tell you what he's not taken by surprise what if all of a sudden we can't have the lights we can't have the screens we can't have the microphones. We can't have the big gathering. What will happen to the church? That's it for the church in Newcastle. It's going to die. Huh. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. But what he requires out of that is a people who've been broken, who've been humbled, who say, God, I can't do it my way. We can't do it our way. We can't do it any way but your way. What do you want, Father? We don't want to be the people who blur the line so much between what we want and what he wants that that line no longer exists. And he says, I need to talk to you very strong in this time because if you think this is tough, wait till you see what's ahead. But, but, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute. I, I kind of, stand with you on this saying God in this season I need more grace now than ever before I will admit to you to those around me James you even said in the next chapter if we confess our faults to one another we're healed and I'll confess before you and these amazing people that so often it's more about me and my way. I know the brokenness that comes through that. But I know the victory that comes through saying, God, have your way. God, I want to stand here not just as an individual, but hopefully along with your people here saying, God, have your way. It's no longer about us and what we present about you and whom we seek in a funny kind of way I firmly believe you're doing something that's going to build your church in a way that's going to take us all by surprise but God we would say we need more grace we need it personally 
because of the battle that's within and we need it, God, corporately in how we treat each other and the people of this city. I want to pray an outpouring of your presence, that grace like we have never experienced. I don't know what it's going to end up looking like, but I know it's going to be great. Because you'll build your church. Listen, this morning, can I say to you, just believing in God's not going to make it. It's got a pride attached to it. Like, yeah, I believe. Yeah, Jesus is good. Like the old song, Jesus is just all right with me. Doobie Brothers used to sing. No, no, it's more than that. There's got to be a brokenness saying, God, I've tried to do it my way. There's got to be a repentance. God, I'm so sorry that I've tried to do this without you and your power. What brings us into his family is repentance and trust. And this morning, get real with God. You you could have sat in church most of your life and you have still not yet come into the family of God simply because you've had a religion and not a repentance and faith together. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to take you back to the boot camp where it all begins. It's time to do a check. It's time to say, God, I'm coming just as I am, broken, without the power and the strength to save myself. I'm saying to you, I'm sorry for trying to do it my way and for the sin that I've committed that offends you. And I'm coming now, broken, in repentance, saying, God, save me. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And I trust in him. With your eyes closed. I I don't care if you grew up as a kid in in this church or you've been to church all your life. Have you ever had that moment where you were so broken that you repented? And you turned to Jesus because there was nothing else. If you haven't done that, why not now? Why not you? If you need to do that right now, I'd love to just uh, stand with you in prayer. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call your name or embarrass you, but remember what James said too. If we confess our faults to one another, there's freedom, there's healing. You might say, Keith, I never did that. I never did that. I know I've been religious, but I've never done that. Would you pray with me? Today will be the day. Just slip your hand up. That today will be the day when you genuinely repent and genuinely trust and genuinely turn to Him. And not just to what the church can do for you, but what He has done for you. Anybody like that here this morning? Just pray with me, Keith. Awesome. Father, I want to thank you that sometimes you just take us back to the hardcore reality of what faith is all about. And we're humbled. We're humbled. And yet at the same time, we're energized because of the power of grace. And I want to thank you for the grace that you've not only given us, but the grace you're about to pour out, not just on us, but on the world. God, I believe the world is being shaken right now. I believe people's foundations are beginning to crack and crumble. And I believe, God, you're going to cause people's eyes to turn towards heaven. Because no one else has the right answer but you. And I believe we're living in an amazing time.
You, you warned us that these kind of things would come and happen, but you told us to look up. You said your, your freedom, your redemption is coming near. And I believe, God, the day is coming, God, where this world will be shaken, so much so there will be a harvest like no man has ever seen. God, begin it in us. Build our faith, God, not just through a shaking, but through the power and the presence of your grace in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.